0: Our scripture reading this day is taken from two places. Uh, Luke 10 verses 1 through 9 is our first scripture passage. And that can be found on page 1,611 in your pew Bibles. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God is near you. Our second scripture reading comes from 1 Kings 17, starting at verse 7, and that can be found on page 555 of your pew Bibles. Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land Then the word of the Lord came to him Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food So he went to Zarephath When he came to the town gate a widow was there gathering sticks He called to her and asked Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her Don't be afraid go home and do as you have said But first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me And then make something for yourself and your son For this is what the Lord the God of Israel says The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So this morning we're going to be talking about hospitality. And most sermons about hospitality focus on offering hospitality to others. We're going to be taking a different kind of look and examining or exploring what it means for us to be recipients of the hospitality of others. Now when I was in university, I had the opportunity to take a semester abroad. So I went to Budapest, took courses there, and on the weekends, because I had a long weekend every weekend, I happened to travel across Europe. And on this particular Friday night, I took the evening train from Budapest to Vienna. And when I got to Vienna, I was going to transfer from there onto a night train that would take me to Paris in the morning. Now the train from Budapest left a little late and it got delayed at one of the stops along the way. And by the time I arrived in Vienna, I was pretty pretty close to just missing that train. When it stopped, I bolted out the door, ran across the platform, and managed to jump on the very last car of the train that was departing the station. Now, my train schedule my train schedule said there were three types of cars on that train. First class, second class, and some sleeping berths. I jumped on a car that was a sleeping berth, the last one, so I started walking forward to the front of the train. I walked through all the sleeping berths and then found myself in first class. There was no second class on this train and my Eurail pass only allowed me to sit in second class. So I hid I I hid in first class until the person collecting and looking at tickets realized that I was not appropriately seated. And he told me I would have to leave the train. The train made a special stop at a tiny, tiny town in the middle of the Alps around midnight and dropped off lonely 19-year-old me where I snuggled with my backpack. It was a a single platform train station. There were just a few chairs there. I snuggled with my backpack and tried to get some sleep in the middle of the night. And by 4 a.m. my back was sore and I was feeling cold and a little bit grumpy, so I decided to take a walk. I started exploring this tiny little town which was situated in the Austrian Alps. I made my way up the mountain. And as the the houses began to thin, I soon found myself walking through fields. And then I saw grazing cattle. And the sun was about to rise. And it was like the most picturesque moment you could ever imagine. It was like the sound of music. Only I didn't sing. It was picturesque until I noticed a man who was hurriedly following me. He was intent on catching up. And I realized then that I was trespassing. And when the farmer approached, he asked me what I was doing on his property. And I tried to explain nervously that I had been kicked off the train and that I was kind of wandering around the town, which didn't make it sound any better. And I thought for sure I was going to be chastised by this farmer. When he looked at me and he invited me in for breakfast with his wife. it was so difficult for me to accept his invitation. Maybe it's because my parents had always warned me that you should be weary of strangers. Maybe you should be cautious about entering someone's house. But I I was hungry and tired and maybe not in the right frame of mind, so I accepted his invitation for breakfast. no word of a lie it is one of the most remarkable moments of my six months in Europe a beautiful breakfast with a farmer and his wife in an 18th century stone house on the top of a picturesque mountain range I was the recipient of someone else's hospitality and it felt good it felt good When you stand before the act of hospitality, when when someone invites you in, it's easy to be hesitant. Sometimes it's hard to accept the invitation. But that's what we're called to do as Christ followers. That's what we're called to do as a missional people. Jesus sent out the 72 disciples or 72 disciples, with even less than I had on hand. They didn't have a backpack full of gear. They were told to take neither bag, nor purse, nor sandals. They were instructed to be guests in the home of all they met along the way. They were to eat what they were given and drink what they were served. And, well, I don't know how they ever we're going to keep up with the rules of kosher if that was their plan. It was risky behavior. Talk about stepping outside of your comfort zone, especially if you're an introvert. Talk about feeling vulnerable and putting yourself out there. Talk about being an alien in a foreign land. But this is what God calls us to do, to be recipients of other people's hospitality. You know, the story of Elijah and the woman of Zarephath is a fascinating one to me, because it reveals a a great deal about how to be this kind of person. So a little bit of context. The kingdom of Israel was at the time ruled by Ahab. And if you remember your Sunday, story, Sunday school stories, well, you know that Ahab was, well, not a great king. He built local temples so that the people wouldn't have to make their way all the way down to Jerusalem. And at those local temples, he appointed priests from outside the clan of the Levites. And he allowed for the worship of Baal. In fact, King Ahab is the one who married Jezebel, a priestess of Baal and the daughter of King Sidon. Now it's true that Israel was experiencing economic prosperity and and they were doing pretty well. There was a lot of political security and safety, but the newfound religious principles that were making and practices that were making their way into the community didn't sit well with God. And Elijah was sent to speak to King Ahab and he was going to note that there would be a drought that would last several years so severe that not even a drop of dew would fall on the land. Not even a drop of dew in a parched land. Now, as the drought approached, if you remember the story, Elijah was told to flee to the Kareth Ravine where he was going to be fed by ravens. And there they brought him meat and bread. And each day he ate, but in time the river from which he drank dried up. And that's where we pick up the story. Things weren't looking good for Elijah. He was standing at the, at the very edge approaching death, wondering how he would carry on. He had nothing to give and nothing to share with anyone. He was desperate. And Elijah was instructed to go empty-handed as he was to Zarephath and connect with a the widow there. Now the widow also literally had nothing to her name. Not only did she not have food and water, but she had no right to own property and she had no way to move into the future with any kind of hope. She too was standing at the edge, if you will. And all that she had was enough flour and oil to make one last meal. One last meal for herself and for her son. And I would imagine, I mean, Scripture doesn't say this, but I would imagine that the last thing she wanted at that particular moment in time was another mouth to feed. And that's when Elijah appears at her doorstep. Now, most of the sermons that have been written about this story, if you've heard them in the past, most of the sermons, focus and draw attention on the widow and the trust that she must have had in making that loaf of bread for her guest. She fed Elijah even when she had nothing to give and in the end she got to eat. Her flour and the jar of oil were never depleted. Most sermons draw attention to her act of hospitality. The forgotten part of the story, though, is the fact that Elijah also had to learn to be the recipient of her hospitality. It was risky for him. Risky for at least two reasons. So first, I would imagine that Elijah's reputation was on the line. According to Israelite law, Men were supposed to care for orphans and support widows, not eat their last bite of food. And a guy moving into a widow's house, well, at the very least, it would start some rumors. So it's risky. But secondly, Elijah needed to trust. Elijah needed to trust not just in what the widow could offer, but in what God could do. Elijah knew full well that that this woman was making her last loaf of bread from those last drops of oil and whatever she had, a handful of flour. And as she mixed these few drops with what was left of her flour, he too needed to trust that, that there would be more. In fact, every single day, the miracle does, does not say that you know, she made the bread and then her pantry was stocked full and they lived confidently for the next five years. Every single day, they ate their last meal together. Every single day, they, they mixed their last drops of flour with that uh, oil that they had. And every single day, they stood at the edge, and Elijah needed to trust that his receiving of her hospitality wouldn't kill them all. So what does it take to be a recipient of someone else's hospitality? We're a fiercely independent people. What does it take to be the recipient of someone else's hospitality, to allow others to be generous to us? Well, there are at least three things that I think are drawn out by the story of Elijah and the widow. The first is this. Receiving hospitality requires overcoming fear. Elijah's reputation was at risk, and so too was his life. Being welcomed by the widow and standing at the edge of their own death, he must have had some fear bubble to the surface. But he doesn't let that fear cause him to run or to, to seek shelter or safety somewhere else. He overcomes that Hospitality, receiving other person's hospitality, requires overcoming fear. I'll never forget the words of of Jim Loney, who was a Christian peacemaker. You may remember back in 2006, he was taken hostage in Iraq and spent four months in a hostage situation. A few months after he came back to Canada and he was released, we invited him to come to the University of Guelph and speak with the students there. What he said on campus was profound. He spoke about the blurred line between host and hostage. Just a side, quick side question. Have you ever felt like a hostage when you're sitting in someone's house? And you're their host, and they're your host, and they keep chatting and chatting and chatting, and all you want to do is go home cause it's eleven o'clock at night, and you feel trapped, you can't get out. There's this blurred line between host and hostage. well, in Jim's case, it couldn't have been more clear. see Jim was apprehended and brought into that hostage situation by a bunch of armed militants. But they weren't the ones who supervised him. When he was there, he was supervised by a couple young men. He referred to them often as almost boys. And those boys hardly knew how to yield a weapon. And Jim would describe them as people who were just trying to make their way through life. And it was clear to Jim that they didn't wanna be there any more than he did. And as the the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months, Jim talked about how they would eat together and talk together and pass time. They had to pass time because it was really boring in that room. And so they played video games together, host, or hostage. Now I wasn't left with the impression from Jim that they became the best of friends. But it amazed me that he was able to speak about these people as being fully human. In order to be the recipient of their hospitality, which is how he described it, they gave him food They let him go to the washroom. In order to be a recipient of their hospitality, he had to overcome the fear, the very legitimate fear of death. Now, I doubt you'll ever be in a hostage situation, and I'm not sure that we're gonna encounter a famine as severe as Elijah's. But both Elijah's and Jim's story reveal the extent to which receiving someone else's hospitality requires us to overcome certain fears. So what are the fears that keep you from interacting with your Muslim colleagues? Or your Aboriginal co-workers? What are the fears that keep you from being invited into someone's house who is living on far less income than you? What are your fears that are keeping you from being welcomed into the home of an elderly person? We need to overcome fears in order to be recipients of others' hospitality. The second thing that comes out in this story. Receiving hospitality requires trust. It doesn't necessarily require trusting in the other person or trusting in yourself. Receiving someone else's hospitality requires trusting in God. See, Elijah, when he steps into this situation, and they're eating their last meal every day again and again. Elijah doesn't trust in himself. He doesn't think to himself, I'm gonna be the one to supply all our needs. We're gonna go hunt for some food and make ends meet. He doesn't trust in the woman that she'll find some extra food hidden in a far off corner in her pantry. Elijah has to trust that God is a God of provision. And at the heart of God is this desire to provide for his people. Receiving someone else's hospitality requires trusting in the heart of God. Mark Labberton wrote a great book. His book is titled, The Dangerous Act of Loving Your Neighbor. And he notes that compassion, mercy, and hospitality are true and life-seeking insofar as they are a reflection of the heart of God. Because receiving another person's hospitality isn't an act of trusting in the other person, as if they could provide all that you need. If it were the case, we'd be mightily disappointed time and time again. Receiving hospitality is an act of faith as we trust in a God who will provide, as we trust in a God who knows that the abundance of the earth, which we are here to steward, the abundance of the earth is enough for us all. The third thing that comes out in these, this story that teaches us about what it means to receive the other person's hospitality is this. Receiving hospitality requires mutuality. It requires mutuality. Elijah and the widow are in this situation together. They are both challenged to give and receive each in different ways. They both need to overcome fears and they both need to learn to trust in God. In other words, they are both very human. Even though they are different and have different like circumstances, they have a sameness to them. They are both creatures of God made by his hands, both fully human receiving someone else's hospitality isn't possible if you if you see them or understand them as the other as you keep them from arm's length at, at arm's length receiving hospitality requires that you understand them and see them as fully human beautifully made creatures of god mark gornick who worked a lot in downtown neighborhoods, trying to revitalize cities, wrote of uh, in his book, To Live in Peace, that giving and receiving are marks of a life in the spirit. And that the church, the church that's shaped by this spirit must always extend itself in sharing and receiving beyond its own circles it is way too easy for us to simply be who we are and invite other people to come into our midst. And he points out that the life of the church really begins when we as a people see all those around us as fully human and as we allow ourselves to sit at their table hospitality requires that kind of mutuality now in our day and age when there's a a fierce independence when we think we can do it all on our own and there's this deep mistrust and a lack of mutuality how do we begin to move forward how do we begin to to change our DNA and become the kind of missional church that's sent into the community? I don't have any easy answers for that. But I'm convinced that thinking about it and talking about it won't be enough. Thinking about it and talking about it won't really allow us to receive other people's hospitality. In order to do that, we have to practice it. We come from a tradition that focuses on orthodoxy or right thinking. In this situation, it's time for orthopraxis or right doing. So how do we do that? I'll give you two kind of simple examples from my own life that have have kind of reawakened this desire to be invited into other people's lives. Last spring, we opened our mailbox up, and in it, I saw an invitation. And it was a simple sheet of colored paper that invited us to a spring fling. I had no idea what a spring fling is. It was from our neighbor, and she was opening up her backyard, and it was going to be a simple wine and cheese party. Now you have to understand that we live on a cul-de-sac and, and our cul-de-sac was built around 40 years ago and pretty much everyone who moved in then was still living and was approaching retirement. Do the math. It's pretty simple. They bought their first house or one of their first houses, and we're still living there. Our kids are the only kids on our street. So I thought, do we go to this spring fling? Do we hang out with people that are older than me, and what's going to happen with my kids? The introvert side of me said, uh-uh, I'm not going. And I didn't want to make it all awkward for my kids, but we did decide to go as a family. And truth be told, it was a really beautiful evening of hanging out with our neighbors, enjoying their company, and getting to know them. Even our kids had a great time listening to the story. So if you get an invitation to a spring fling, go. It's my suggestion to you. I don't know what it's like in Hamilton these days after the truth and reconciliation process uh, and the report was written, but in Guelph there is a, a really large attempt, a really significant attempt on the part of the aboriginal community in Guelph to create opportunities for people to interact and to get to know each other. And I received an invitation to a healing circle. I didn't know what a healing circle was, and I didn't know what conversations were going to unfold. And again, the introvert side of me said, no, and most of all, I didn't want to hear more because of the shame that kind of bubbles up in me. I didn't want to hear more about how the church has contribu- had contributed to the former residential school system. But I went. I was the recipient of their hospitality. We talked. We told stories. We learned from one another. It felt so good to be the recipient of someone else's hospitality. And I saw for the first time, I think. That reconciliation isn't possible if we aren't willing to sit down at the table and hear one another. So if you get an invitation to a healing circle, go. And truth be told, there's 101 examples that you could tell, I'm sure, of moments when you were invited in and you accepted the invitation and you saw people in a new way and you were the recipient of their hospitality in which you finally were able to overcome certain fears in which you were finally able to trust not that you would be okay or that you would make it okay or that someone else would create a perfect situation for you, but trust that God was working out his salvation for you. Receiving the hospitality of others is what God desires for his people. God, through his spirit, draws people into a family and invites them to sit down at the same table, breaking through the fragmentation of human life. And it's my prayer It's my prayer that the life of faith, this life that overcomes fear, this life that sees others as fully human, this life of mutuality and trust would open you up to the receiving of others' hospitality and that you might be entertained by angels without even knowing it. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you model for us what it looks like to be in fellowship with one another. And you have been so generous with us. Lord, we thank you for your hospitality. And we pray that we would be hospitable to others. But Lord, this morning in a special special way, we pray that you would work in our hearts and minds. That you would transform us and open us up to the possibility of being recipients of other people's hospitality. Lord, when invitations come our way, give us eyes to see them for what they are. And may we go out like your disciples, eager, eager to receive the hospitality of others so that your name would be praised and all glory would go to you because you are a God whose heart is one of provision. In Christ's name we pray, amen.